This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Ah, the patron saint of the conspiracy show, Howard Beale from Network, played by uh, the late Peter Finch. One of my all-time favorite movies, and we kick off the show most weeks uh, with that uh, with that clip. If you haven't seen it, my word, go out and rent it or buy it. Uh, it's, um, my gosh, 36 years ago, I think, that was uh, uh, produced and uh, written by the great screenwriter, television writer, uh, Paddy Chayefsky, and uh, still stands up all these years later. Say listen, or uh, welcome rather, to the broadcast uh, for Sunday, June the 17th. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers. Uh, my little guys brought home, uh, I don't know, they, they uh, in kindergarten they... Um, they help make them fashion uh, these, you know, utensils, uh, plates and cups, and then they put them in a kiln, and then they paint them, and it's uh, so uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, gifts from my little guys. And, of course, they insist right there. You've got to eat out of it. You've got to eat off of it now, and you've got to drink out of it right now. <laughs> they wouldn't hear otherwise. So uh, it's a delight. I, I waited my whole life to get, to get uh, that... Uh, those sorts of uh, gifts and crafts for my little ones. My wife loves the uh, the macaroni uh, noodle necklaces and uh, the macaroni art that you get. You know when they stick craft uh, dinner all over paper plates and then spray paint it? That's, it's worth its weight in gold is what I'm telling you. All right, we are going to uh, talk 2012 in just a few moments with uh, essayist, author, researcher uh, who's delved into this in a very serious manner for the last four or five years because he wasn't getting any clear answers on what was supposed to happen on 2012. He would go to a lecture and he'd leave more confused than ever. Uh, Thomas Rosetta will be here in just a few moments. A little later in the program, uh, we'll talk with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who normally joins us the second Sunday of every month. Uh, but here it is, the third Sunday. Last week she was at a conference, so she'll be with us uh, tonight, um, sometime after midnight, talking about multi-dimensional portals and uh, wait till you hear what comes through those gateways from another dimension into our world uninvited so uh, 
I mentioned 2012, and uh, just fresh off of uh, a wonderful three days spent at Idea City, Moses Neimer's brainchild. It's the 13th year, Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and uh, held at uh, beautiful uh, Kerner Hall on uh, on Bloor uh, near University, part of the Royal Conservatory of Music. In fact, it's attached to this beautiful, mo- I don't normally like modern architecture, but this is a beautiful, tastefully done um, modern building, building incorporated into the Royal Conservatory of Music, which is, a, I guess, sort of an Edwardian uh, architecture. Absolutely stunning venue. And uh, Moses Neimer, of course, who uh, is the, uh, the brains behind Zuma Radio and Vision TV uh, and Idea City, absolutely everything accounted for. Seamless. Uh, the moment you, I walked in the door, there were people there to greet you, to direct you, to help you. And um, I had the, un, uh, the unenviable task of, um, of being the, um, the first person to speak at Idea City this year. Actually, I followed a young uh, Aboriginal uh, uh, girl who sang a, a number of songs, one of which she penned herself, called Shallow Waters, about how the proposed Enbridge pipeline is going to uh, destroy or potentially uh, ruin her Aboriginal culture on the uh, the West Coast, and uh, she totally captivated the audience, and uh, for good reason. Very talented uh, young girl, and then so I had to follow her with my my uh, my address on 2012, as it uh, as it happens. So um, we'll delve into 2012 in a little more detail. Let me give you a quick heads up. What's coming up next week on the program? Uh, Sunday January uh, Sunday June the 24th. Uh, Brad and Sherry Steiger uh, will be with us that week, not tonight, next week. And uh, they'll talk about their new book, which is uh, sort of a ens- major encyclopedic work on uh, conspiracies and uh, from A to Z, from uh, Princess Diana to uh, the assassinations of JFK, RFK, MLK, uh, you name it, it's all in there. So we'll, uh, we'll talk with Brad and Sherry Steiger. And then in the second hour... Nelson Thal, media scientist, along with Ms. Steele, uh, will be here to talk about how Michael Jackson faked his death and where he is living today. That's all uh, next week. And then the following week, Sunday, July the 1st, Victor Vigiani will be sitting in the air chair, and uh, he'll uh, dedicate the full two hours to uh, UFOs, ETs. Uh, I believe his guests are Bryce Zabel, the co-author of after Disclosure, along with Richard Dolan, and in the second hour of the program, Thomas Stryker, uh, who wrote a book called Extraplanetary Experiences. So stay tuned for Victor Vigiani on Sunday, July the 1st, and uh, a big welcome to uh, Andre Lowy, our uh, technical producer, sitting in for David Gaskin uh, tonight and next week as well. So if you call the program, and we'll give you the numbers in a moment, be sure to say hello to uh, Andre and welcome aboard The Conspiracy Show. And uh, we'll step away here for a few moments and then on the other side, we'll pick it up with author Thomas Rosetto, who wrote The uh, Mystical 2012, The Triple Rebirth of the Sun and The Triple Rebirth of You. We'll find out what that all means on the other side. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And coming up at uh, 1230 this morning, multidimensional portals with paranormal researcher Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Some people think uh, that we may be heading into some sort of uh, enormous cosmic portal. That's what's uh, really behind December 21st, 2012. Why did the Mayan long count calendar end on December 21st, 2012? Uh, you have the, the doom and gloom prophets who, who say that uh, somehow the Mayans knew on that precise day uh, that we're going to be um, um, colliding with uh, the 12th planet or a, a comet or a, an asteroid or there'll be a, a mass coronal ejection uh, causing uh, power grids all over the Earth to uh, to stop, or there'll be a polar shift, or some major volcanic activity. On and on the doom and gloomers go. Uh, but my next guest doesn't think any of that's going to happen. I happen to agree with him. He's here to tell us about why the Mayans picked December twenty first, twenty twelve, to end their calendar. Thomas Rosetto has a degree in electrical engineering with an emphasis in computer programming, and this education also provided him a solid background in science, including physics and chemistry. So about four years ago, Thomas became interested in 2012 after attending a public lecture about science and myth. And as part of the lecture, the topic of 2012 was presented, but not in a very clear way. So he started to do his own research and quickly found the work of John Major Jenkins and the Galactic Alignment. But this Galactic Alignment already peaked in 1998. So Thomas spent months digging and searching for the real reason the Maya picked the exact day of the winter solstice of 2012. And after two years of research and contemplation, Thomas wrote a book titled Mystical 2012, The Triple Rebirth of the Sun and the Triple Rebirth of You. Thomas Rosetto, hey, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, And uh, thank you for coming on. So, um, 2012, December 21st, 2012, Obviously, you don't think uh, it's a doom and gloom scenario. It's it's a galactic alignment of sorts, I'm guessing. But but as you mentioned, John Major Jenkins was predicting a galactic alignment. What did John Major Jenkins' galactic alignment entail exactly? You know, his alignment is fairly complex. And I'll answer your question. We'll get right to it. But I do want to point out that the astronomy that I point to is much simpler. And it's more like art than astronomy. It's something that you'll be able to look up in the sky and see with your eyes without a telescope. The galactic alignment, and I really like John. I don't want to get off on the wrong foot here. John's a great guy and a great researcher. It's just that the galactic alignment, which is looking at the position of the sun at the exact moment of the winter solstice and asking the question, what is behind the sun? Is it this galactic equator? And right around 1998, the center of the sun at the exact moment of the winter solstice was indeed very, very close to the galactic equator. And in the years adjacent to that, it's a little bit further out and a little bit further out, and then finally you're far enough away that they say, well, the alignment is no longer happening. But that's kind of a misleading way of, le- of stating it because throughout the year, you can draw a line from the Earth through the sun and out into space. And right around the time of the winter solstice, that line will go very close to the galactic equator. But throughout the year, it will swing all the way around in a circle and then come back. So it's kind of like looking only at that one moment of the winter solstice and asking the question, where is the sun? Whereas actually, I think it's better 
to step back and imagine what the Maya were looking at thousands of years ago. Do you want to cover the galactic alignment more? Oh, we will. We'll get to that a little bit later, for sure. I, I mean, I, I think that's where we're leading up to, what, why they picked December yeah. 21st, 2012. But yeah. let's just back up for a moment and talk about uh, the Mayans a little bit. First of all, um, we, 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 we tend to focus on the Mayan long count calendar, but the Mayans had three calendars. Uh, they, they had something called, was it the Zolkan and the Hob? Yes, yes. And, and those were sort of their more of a working calendar, the, yes, yes. the Zolkan. Explain how that, that calendar worked. Well, that's um, a 260-day calendar, and it has its roots in three areas. One is the growing of the corn, which you plant the corn, and then 260 days later you harvest the corn. Approximately, it's not exactly 260 days. Same with the growth of the human in the womb. It's approximately 260 days. And then there's also an astrological event, an astronomical event, I'm sorry, an astronomical event where the sun goes directly over your head, and then 260 days later it goes directly over your head again. All three of those events have this 260-day cycle in them, and yet all three of them also exhibit a resting period, like a woman doesn't normally give birth and then give birth again nine months later. It's about a year. Same with planting the corn. You don't harvest the corn and then immediately plant it again. And so it is with the sun. It goes directly over your head, and then there's 105 days where it's in another period, and then it starts that 260 over again. So that 260-day framework was considered a period of creation, and it's also integrated into the Maya long-count calendar. Yeah, the, 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 the interesting thing about the Mayans is, first of all, they developed this these calendars, and, and they tended to work with units of 20, didn't they? Like, their yes. months were 20, equivalent to 20 days. Yes, yes, and that's because, most likely, they were using their 20 fingers and toes. Right, but the other thing is that, that living in, in, in sync with the, sort of, the natural harmony, or the natural cycles of life, uh, imagine marking time um, you know, by the period of human gestation. I mean, that's a very natural way. You contrast that with the Western mechanistic linear way of keeping time. And I think that's how we get into trouble when, uh, and this is where the doom and gloomers, I think, have it all wrong, when they're looking at the Mayan calendar uh, from a Western linear perspective, they don't understand that the Mayans were living or, or they, they were in tune with the repeating cycles of nature. Everything, everything cycled, everything repeated, including the Mayan long count calendar. Yes, and I think also that, yes, of course, they saw the gestation of humans, but they also saw that this gestation was different for other animals and other plants. So they knew that life came with its own rhythm, and also that humans are not all born, you know, on the same day. We have people born all throughout the year. So there's an individuality, a uniqueness to all of this cyclic expression, these forms that come forward in time, which is a very mysterious thing, is present with its own unique form. The thing about the Mayans, though, I mean, they were, their astronomers were also priests. Yes. But uh, now, did they have, I, uh, my understanding is that they actually had some sort of an ob observatories. I mean, they didn't just, they, they were great at looking up into the, na the sky and tracking you know, yeah. the celestial bodies with the naked eye, and, and Lord knows they could 1,500 years ago from Izapa, Mexico, where there was no light pollution. Yeah. Uh, but they also, did they also not have uh, other instruments and ways of, of tracking the, the celestial bodies, like observatories? 
Well, yes, I think so. And one of them, I think, even goes back 3,000 years. 3,000 years ago, um, we have um, indication from the work of Marianne Hatch in Laventa. And what she found was that there was a building, we could probably call it a temple, and it was aligned to the horizon where a star is said to rise. Well, I think that star would be Sirius, the brightest star. That's the one you'd make a temple for. And Sirius would rise from the horizon. And so here's this building directly facing that rise point. And this can be witnessed many, many times throughout the year. And every time it happens, it seemingly happens from the exact same place. But after a period of maybe 50, 70, or 100 years, they noticed that they didn't maybe know why, but due to the wobble of the Earth procession, this star, all the stars, started rising from a slightly different place. So they took the building down and rebuilt it, now aligned correctly again. And we have this shift in the building dating back 3,000 years. So at that point, we know that the people living in that area, which precedes the Maya, probably with the Olmec, they were now aware of the effects of the wobble of the earth, and they would be immediately paying attention to it and measuring time. And the way they measured time was by counting days. And this is very helpful, and they had a very long period of observation from 3,000 years ago when this building was rebuilt to 2,000 years ago when the long count calendar was first carved into stone. We have this 1,000 years of observation, which gives them the precision that they needed to exactly hit the winter solstice 2,000 years in the future, and Richard gave them the ability to hit another astronomical event 2,000 years before they started counting, which would be 5,000 years total. And this is another solar zenith when the sun goes directly overhead. That happens at the beginning of the Maya Long Count calendar. So they point both forward and backwards and in a way that encapsulates a 5,125-year period, which points specifically to this rhythm of the wobble. It's one-fifth of the processional cycle within 1%. Just absolutely stunning the work they did. Thomas Rosetto is the author of Mystical 2012, The Triple Rebirth of the Sun and the Triple Rebirth of You. We'll find out what that means, and we'll also let you know how you can get a hold of uh, Thomas's book. Now, that 5,125 years you mentioned, that's the great cycle. Uh, and that's... No, 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 that's um, one-fifth of the great cycle. It is the long count Cycle, right. But the, yes, that's right. The, yes, five of those great. The, yes, five yes. of those make the uh, the twenty six thousand years, which is the the uh, I guess the procession of the equinoxes. Right. So the correct. Of the earth. Thank you. So the but the five thousand one hundred twenty five years. That's how we, we we should explain. I guess how we arrived at the fact that the Mayan count calendar, the, the long count calendar, ends on December 21st, 2012, because in order to do that, you need to know when the Mayan, ca- Mayan long count calendar begins. Um, actually, the way they did it is they just correlated dates between what was known around the time the invasion happened and what was carved, and they had people work on this from many disciplines, um, and they worked on it from 1905 to 1950, over 45 years. And it's beyond a reasonable doubt when they finish that work that the Maya calendar recycles, restarts on December 21st, 2012. And um, when you see the astronomy that actually happens, that actually unfolds exactly on that day over the Maya and over us, when we see that astronomy, we know that this is exactly what they were pointing at because 
these metaphorical symbols are in their metaphorical stories. It's beyond a, a shadow of a doubt for me. Yeah, we should just, uh, I just want to back up because I think it's an important point how you mentioned how they worked for, you know, nearly 50 years on trying to correlate uh, because I guess after the Spanish conquest, they found that there were things that were recorded both in exactly. in, in the Gregorian calendar in Mexico yeah. that were also reflected in the Mayan calendar. Yeah. And so that they correlated those two and and so... Uh, they they were able to count back and, and realize that the uh, I guess the the beginning of the Mayan long count calendar starts it was something like thirty one hundred and fourteen uh, B C. Yeah, I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but right. I think you got it. So if you add five thousand one hundred and twenty five years, you end up with December twenty first, twenty twelve. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Listen, we'll uh, we'll take a time out when we come back. Let's start to get into uh, this. A triple rebirth of the sun, the triple rebirth of, of you. Uh, what this galactic alignment, this beautifully simplistic galactic alignment involves with the winter solstice sun, the galactic equator, and uh, all tied into some other uh, Mayan symbols, which would have been very important to them. And we'll find out why it's important to us as well. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show as we discuss 2012 and the Mayans. Here on AM 740, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we'll open up the phone lines in just a few moments. I just want you to uh, to listen uh, to Thomas Rosetto, my guest, uh, talk a little bit about the Mayan long count calendar, why the Mayans picked December 21st, 2012, uh, and then... Um, we'll, um, we'll let you loose and you can ask, uh, uh Thomas anything you'd like, but first, uh, sort of hear him out and, and, and now we'll get into the actual, uh, galactic alignment and why specifically the Mayans were looking for this winter solstice sun this very year, uh, to be such a dramatic, uh, uh thing for them. So, uh, let's, let's, uh, begin to discuss that then, Thomas, what were the Mayans looking for? What did they anticipate was going to happen um, as we approached December 21st, 2012, and they looked up into the heavens? Okay, what we're going to be talking about is images that can be seen with the naked eye up in the sky. And these things um, were used as the basis of metaphorical stories. But before we get into that, I just want to point back to what we were saying earlier about John Major Jenkins and the galactic alignment. What he's actually talking about needs to know exactly when the moment of the winter solstice is. And I don't think that the Maya could tell exactly when the winter solstice was, nor do I think they could tell exactly where what we call the galactic equator was. However, let's imagine going back 3,000 years ago when they're looking up in the sky in the summertime, they would see this skinny band of stars, the Milky Way. We're looking at the Milky Way on its edge, but they didn't need to realize that. They just looked up and saw this long, skinny band. And in the summertime, they could look towards the center region of the galaxy. And again, they didn't need to understand that. They just saw this bulge. And so for them, they were looking up and seeing the body of the sacred goddess. And the big bulge was the pregnant belly. And in there is the dark rift, and that's the birth canal. So you have the question that everyone asks, 
where did all this stuff come from, the story of creation? And so they're answering that by pointing up to the sky and saying this sacred goddess gave birth to everything, and here's her pregnant belly, and here's the birth canal. And that section of the sky was called the point of creation. This is, as the Maya would refer to it, the place where that which is unseen or spiritual is transformed into that which is seen. In other words, the spiritual becomes the physical. Something is born. And once a year, they knew that the sun went right through that region and was in the center of the dark rift for one day. It's in the dark rift for about three days, two and a half days. But it's in right in the center of the dark rift for one day every year. And so 3,000 years ago, they noticed that that day was in late November. And that was a rebirth of the sun. But they also knew of two other rebirths of the sun. Every day, of course, the sun sets and it goes into the underworld. And then in the morning, it rises above the horizon and brings us the heat and light we all need to stay alive. So that rebirth of the sun, although it happens every day and we tend to get a little bit jaded, is critical for our life. And so they always paid attention to the daily rebirth of the sun. And then once a year, we have the winter solstice, where the days have been getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And then finally, the sun starts to regain its strength and travel through the sky on a longer path, giving us a longer day. So that was also another rebirth of the sun. And they noticed 3,000 years ago that the rebirth of the sun in the pregnant belly's womb was happening in late November, but happening later and later. So it was moving closer and closer to the day of the winter solstice. So in their mind, they asked the question, what day, what year will the rebirth of the sun in the galactic sense match up with the rebirth of the sun for the winter solstice? And of course, the daily sunrise is here, therefore, all the time. So that would happen and create a triple rebirth of the sun. Well, this happens in many of the years around 2012. It happened last year and the year before that and the year before that and on for quite a while, and it will keep going. But in 2012, there's also what I call the special configuration of the sacred tree. This is the region right next to where the sun is. In other words, the sun is traveling with its planetary companions. And so Venus is leading this. It's actually a parade that starts off at a quarter to five in the morning. Venus rises above the horizon. Now, for everyone that's listening, it, this will happen where you live too, but you'll have to shift the times that I mentioned to match your local time. But for the Maya, where they lived in Izapa, at a quarter to five in the morning, Venus will rise above the, above the horizon, announcing, here comes the sun, here comes the sun. The triple rebirth of the sun is happening today. And then a little bit later, Mercury will rise. And you don't normally get to see Mercury, but on this day, you will be able to see Mercury rise, unless, of course, it's cloudy. And then at 6.30 in the morning, the sun will rise. And at that point, of course, the sky will become more blue. You won't be able to see these planets. But we know that they're still there. And as the sun rises higher and higher, it moves more south into the south part of the sky until the middle of the day. Well, actually, with Mars rising at about 8.30 in the morning and following this parade, it Mars is the last component of this parade. So this parade marches across the sky throughout the entire day, and at high noon, you have sun, the sun at its highest point, with Mars on the left and Venus on the right, and the sun almost exactly in the middle. And this is a pretty big thing in the sky. It's not technically in alignment, so I don't usually like to use that word. I call it a configuration, the special configuration of the sacred tree. If you hold your arms out all the way and spread your hands out all the way and put the tips of your thumbs together 
and put it right up there where the sun is at high noon, where your left fingertip of your little finger is, that's where Mars will be. And on your right hand, on your little finger, on the tip, that's where Venus will be. That's how big this will be. And right through the sun is the dark rift. Now this is actually a yin-yang symbol of dark and light being shown against one another. So we have very poetic and very deep meanings. And the parade continues through the rest of the afternoon, and then Venus will set, and then Mercury will set, and then the sun will set. And then it will become dark, and you'll be able to see Mars announcing the end of the parade as Mars sets below the horizon. So you see, this is something that they will see with their eyes. Now, they can't see the dark rift in the middle of the day, but they can see it in the summertime, and they know the rhythms, so they know that it will be there in the wintertime when this all happens. So it's a spectacular event. It's the triple rebirth of the sun, the special configuration of the sacred tree, and what does it all mean? Well, you tell me, what does it all mean? I think it means something metaphorical. I don't think the message of 2012 is about the conditions of the world. I think it is about the full nature of reality and the true fundamental identity of each of us as pure awareness. And the reason I say that is because the Maya left us the sacred ceremonial ground in Izapa, the birthplace of the Maya long count calendar. And there we have, in stone and in other ways, depictions of this triple rebirth of the sun. And we also have the Bufo Toad, B-U-F-O, Bufo Toad. It's something that gave them psychedelic chemical. And these shamans were experiencing psychedelic experiences for about a thousand years, perhaps more, again, from about 3,000 years ago to about 2,000 years ago for the creation of the Maya Long Count Calendar. This is the time period where they learned the meaning that they wanted to communicate to the world. And so they used these toads. They made statues of these toads as altars. Nothing could be held in a more high place. What is used for the altar? The best thing you have. So what are they using? These toads. And they're giving them a psychedelic experience. Now, because we're talking about psychedelics, I need to say something that I'm not promoting the use of these. I promote the use of meditation for spiritual growth. And yet the Maya did use this. And it doesn't mean that if you use it, you will have these experiences. It's, it's a very individualistic kind of thing. So it's also illegal and dangerous. However, this is what they use, and this is what their message uh, left us. And another thing that's important to point out about this sacred ceremonial grounds is if the time of 2012 was so important, they would have carved it, in my opinion, in stone 100 feet high. And yet not a single long count calendar date is carved anywhere in the sacred ceremonial site of Azapa. Just these metaphorical symbols of transformation, rebirth, triple rebirth of the sun, this psychedelic toad, over and over again, that keeps telling us about rebirth, rebirth, transformation and rebirth. So what are the three rebirths of you? We know the three rebirths of the sun, and you are metaphorically the sun. What are the three rebirths of you? Well, everyone knows their first birth, which is their birth into their body. We're talking about the material world and having a material understanding a pure material understanding with no awareness of any spiritual aspects. You see what I mean, Richard? Right, right. Yeah, pure, pure, so, purely materialism. Yes, and with um, other experiences, they might not have been with the toad, the, it could have been other ways, but they became aware of the spiritual world, another world that lies behind our world, a greater reality that lies behind our reality. And so this is like the discovery of the spiritual world or the discovery of your soul. So we have the body and the soul. Those are two rebirths, but there's one more. The one 
last birth is hard to describe, but the way I would describe it is, mm, let's just say that it would be something along the lines of waking up to your true identity as pure awareness. This pure awareness is what holds the body. It's what holds the soul. But it is you, pure awareness, pure consciousness. And this is the true self, the third rebirth. And this is what I think the core of the message that the Maya want to bring us. I think that's it. Now, now did the, the, uh, the minds, because some have, some have uh, conjectured that this galactic alignment, whether we're talking about uh, John Major Jenkins, more elaborate alignment, which probably peaked in 98, or uh, your um, description of an alignment. Triple rebirth. Triple rebirth of the sun in the middle of the dark rift, the birth canal of the mother of creation. Uh, Whether accompanying that galactic alignment would be some sort of elevation in human consciousness. What do you think? Yes. um, This is a very uh, common interpretation. Um, I like to put it this way. Um, if I were to write a poem about enlightenment and spiritual awakening, I might use the sunrise as a metaphor, because that's the time that light comes into our dark world and that we are awakened from our slumber. But that doesn't mean that my poem should be taken to tell us that when the sun rises, we will become enlightened. I'm telling you that you can become enlightened in your own time, whenever that might be. So while I don't think that the Maya are using this in a way of predicting an upward shift in human consciousness, I also don't want people to get the idea that I'm saying that we can't have an upward shift in human consciousness. In other words, the beneficial effects of your actions and attitude have no known limits. But this is not quite the same thing as saying that you can do anything, that you can for sure do anything. There is a sense of adventure, a sense of mystery, a sense of wonder to life. And I think that the Maya would want us to explore that and enjoy that. How uh, were the Maya? I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you think that, that they were able to um, uh, you know, predict solar eclipses of the sun, yes. you know, yes, yes. I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of years into the future. I think thousands, yeah. Thousands of years yeah. into the future. How were they able to uh, uh, construct such an elaborate yes. and, and uh, pre- precise uh, timepiece as the Mayan long-term calendar? Well, let me give you an example that's something that everyone can follow. We know that the full moon goes through a cycle, and it comes to a new full moon. I shouldn't say it that way because the new moon is another expression. Imagine we go from full moon to full moon. That takes about 29 and a half days. Now, the Maya saw that, and they said, let's count the days and watch the moon. And so what they did over about 12 years, they counted each and every day, and they counted each and every full moon. And so when they finished their 12 years, they had counted 149 full moons. And they had counted 4,400 days. And when you divide one into the other, you find out that the cycle is correct, matching our modern scientists in a percentage-wise 99.999% correct. And all they did was watch and count. Now that's the cycle of the moon, a fairly quick cycle, about 30 days. And they took 12 years to study it, and they probably kept continuing, but we've only found the records of this. 
So over this thousand-year period from 3,000 years ago to 2,000 years ago where they created the calendar, and that's when they had to know the precision, in that thousand years of observation, they were observing the rhythms of the planets, the rhythms of the, of the uh, wobble of the Earth, and the shift in the um, day of the winter solstice. And by watching it for a thousand years and counting these days, they were then able to project. Remember, they have an observational period of a thousand years. They're now able to project 2,000 years in the future, just twice as long as they've observed. So it's not that much of a stretch. If they have things down to within a half a day or less, when they project 2,000 years into the future, they'll be on the correct day. And that's exactly what they did. But the, the procession of the equinoxes that leads to if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas, that the procession of the equinoxes, which, which takes 26,000 years, which is, yes, yes. you know, the great cycle, yes, yes. five times the length of the Mayan long count calendar of 5,125 yes, yes. years. So it's 26,000 years it takes for the sun to appear precisely in the center of the, the, the dark rift of the Milky Way, which is sort of the birth canal of the mother of creation, correct? Well... If you, if you start there, which is where we are now, in 26,000 years, it will be there again on the day of the winter solstice, yes. Yes. How were they able to project 26,000 years into the future? Um, they could see that the full year had so many days in it, and they could see that in late November, it was happening, um, the sun was in the middle of the dark rift in late November, and they wanted to know approximately one month later. So you have a 12, one-twelfth of the cycle you see, from late November 3,000 years ago to 2012, you know, now. So they, they were just, able to just do the ratio. They just did the ratio, and they, they said 26,000 years. So they're figuring, if this is going to take 26,000 years for this to occur, yeah, let's mark this occasion. Let's, let's have that as the end point of the Mayan long count calendar, and then everything resets after that. I think that, the, yes, I think that a lot of people say that the end of the calendar is December 21st, 2012. My personal opinion, which is slightly different, is that on the day that the sun is born three times, the calendar itself is reborn. Right. In other words, that's the first day of the new cycle. All right, listen, we'll take a time out, we'll come back. Maybe we can chat a little bit, uh, we'll chat more about uh, uh, the Mayans and the astronomy uh, of, of 2012, December sure. 21st, 2012. Uh, we'll also talk about how this all got started, this doom and gloom, uh, yeah. uh, misinterpretation of the Mayan prophecies, perhaps. We'll discuss with Thomas Rosetto, the author of Mystical 2012, The Triple Rebirth of the Sun and the Triple Rebirth of You. Also, we'll open up the phone lines right now. And you can get in on the conversation at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll free from just about anywhere, 1-866-744-740. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. 
Never mind the Mayan long count calendar, uh, keeping track of 5,125-year cycles. I can't even keep track of next week. Uh, just a slight correction on what's coming up next week. I mentioned uh, Brad and Sherry Steiger. They will be on the program. But next week, next week, it's Ed Decker, uh, the, uh, the author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry. Uh, he'll be here at 11 o'clock Eastern and then followed by uh, uh, media scientist Nelson Thal and Ms. Steele discussing uh, uh, Michael Jackson, of course, coming up on the anniversary of his uh, death or did he, in fact, die? Uh, Nelson and Juan, uh, Ms. Steele will discuss. That's next week. Okay, so there we've got that squared away. Let's get back to uh, the Mayan long count calendar and Thomas Rosetto, the author of Mystical 2012, The Triple Rebirth of the Sun and the Triple Rebirth of You. Now, uh, the, the way that the Mayans um, recorded December 21st, 2012, that was, was it 13 baktuns, correct? Mm. So it ends... December 21st, 2012 equals 13 uh, baktuns exactly. Is that right? Yeah, right. 13 followed by those four zeros. Right, yeah. right. And, and um, so the, the, the idea, though, that something was going to befall mankind. Yes. There were, um, there were anthropologists, I think Michael uh, Coe, uh, an American uh, author and, yeah, and anthropologist, uh, writing back in the late 60s. Yeah. I think he's with Brigham Young. Yeah, did he not claim that he had deciphered one of the Mayan prophecies? And in that prophecy, it said something about the 13th Baktun and some sort of Armageddon befalling the degenerate uh, of all creation or something. I mean, isn't that how it all got started? You know, I've heard various different reports of what Michael said. Michael's still alive, so we could actually ask him. But um, uh, I heard someone say, I think it was John Major Jenkins, say that Coe's original comment was probably tongue-in-cheek about, look at this calendar that restarts. I wonder if it's the end of the world or something. And then it, it lost its humor as it got handed around. And so um, it, it, it fell into that, uh, you know, doom and gloom category. Yes, and how unfortunate, uh, because um, I was reading a couple of weeks ago that uh, David Morrison is the... Uh, chief scientist at NASA's uh, Astrobiology Institute, and he receives something like 10 emails every day oh my gosh. from people that are frightened to death about December 21st. And I'm talking, uh, there was a woman in Denmark who, who wrote to him yeah. uh, who was uh, contemplating, Thomas, if you can believe it, yeah. taking her life and her children's lives. Oh my gosh. A 13-year-old boy in the United States who said, I am scared to tears, I don't want to live anymore. And then we have this horrible... The incident in England where a 16-year-old uh, schoolgirl uh, hanged herself. There is so much damage exactly. out there, psychological, yeah. emotional trauma being inflicted on people because of, of uh, I don't know whether it was a misunderstanding or a misquote, uh, yeah. but people believing that it's the end. Yeah, and there's a lot of misunderstanding of what the astronomy will actually do. Some people say there's some kind of you know, gravitational, cosmic waves, or this or that and the other thing, or there's going to be days of darkness. When I say that the sun is going to be in the dark rift, I actually shouldn't state it that way. I should say that the dark rift is going to be very, very far in the background as the sun passes in front of it, and it will not be gobbled up in darkness. It'll just, and it does this every year, so there's no need to wonder about what the effects will be, you know. So I, I um, really um, 
not concerned at all about the doom and gloomers. Um, although that's not to say that there couldn't be problems with satellites or, you know, solar flares or all kinds of things can bite us, you know. I mean, it's just I don't think there's too much free will in the 2,000 years between the time the calendar was put in place and now for, in my opinion, any prediction, good, bad, spiritual or physical, to actually be why they made it. it has, they have to be motivated to make this. I mean, right? Exactly, exactly. And so the motivation has to mean something to them. It has to mean a lot to them. And that's why I think it's about the nature of reality, not the conditions of the world in our time. You know what I mean? Well, yes, I mean, so, and we can talk a, a little bit later about, you know, there are things out there that it's not a question of, of, of if, it's when. And, and yeah. you know, we're talking about asteroid collisions. We, we yeah. had one in 1908 when... It was a pretty small asteroid. I think it was 20 meters in diameter, landed yeah. in Siberia. and, and yeah. uh, I mean, that could potentially... Yeah. yeah it, in fact, it, they're finding out some new uh, research about an impact in the Great Lake areas uh, 13,000 years ago. Sure. And that's yeah. reasonably new research, and uh, it uh, caused quite a bit of problems. And, and let's go back to the Maya real quickly. Um, as you know, you hear about Shambhalam predicting you know, the demise well, his predictions came at the time that the Spanish were already in the Caribbean, yet not yet in the land of the Maya. So he was saying, you know, looking bad, you know, coming up soon. And sure enough, you know, the Spanish did come and cause problems. But it wasn't like he was 2,000 years away from the event saying, uh, you know, I see something and this is it. You see what I mean? Yeah, no, he was predicting this, this, or foreseeing perhaps the Spanish conquest in the 16th century. Yeah, and they were already in the Caribbean. Right, you know? right. Oh, so it wasn't like a, you know, a big deal. Let's say hello to uh, Thomas, who's checking in from Toronto. Good evening, Thomas. Welcome. Or James, rather. My apologies. James, you're on the line with Thomas Rosetto. Welcome. Uh, I have two, like a lot of people, I have two two different names, you know. Arthur it's funny, my my brother's name, I have two brothers. One is Richard, and one is James. There you oh. go. All right, James, go ahead. Your question. Anyway, God being perfect, he doesn't create anything that's not perfect. Many people say, well, if God created the perfect humans, why did they go against his will? Because he, had, he gave them free will to choose. That's, that's the way they were made perfect. So God. Okay, let's get back to 2012, if we could, James. What is your question about 2012? Well, I don't really know what to, what it's all about, but the thing is, God does not say that everything will go different according to his plan. His plan is for Armageddon to come and for beasts to beast, survivors at Armageddon, the ones who do his will. We, we must follow the Bible's rules. All right, James. Uh, actually, it's Arthur, but thank you for that. He slipped by our gatekeeper. Uh, one call per month, if you could, Arthur. appreciate it. Uh, well, you know, it's it's interesting, Thomas, how we, again, we, we tend to overlay certain um, yeah. meanings depending on your yeah. eschatology. Uh, the, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a Christian. We, we were looking at, uh, you know, the book of Revelation and predictions there about an end times, and we're thinking, well, could that coincide with with yeah. 2012 and yeah. and uh, uh, you know there's yeah, people try to bring in the Hopi and all this and I just don't see all those linking together you know the Maya were the only ones that had such a specific calendar I mean it counts the days if you can imagine that there's over 760 some thousand days between the time they put that calendar down and the event when it restarts right and what can be predicted so precisely like that only the astronomy well, that's just it. We tend to call them Mayan prophecies, but they're not prophecies. They're predictions exactly. based on what they've seen before. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
All right. They always are asking, what's happening in the sky? Let's look at it. Let's measure it. And they would see things that didn't, re- you know, for example, um, there, there are meteor showers that happen seasonally, but there are also meteors that don't happen in that rhythm, you know, and there are comets that um, some comets come in and go out and they never come back. And sometimes you can't tell whether that's the same comet you saw before. You right, know? So, right. Um, there was a lot of wonder about what was going on in there. And it was very clear that the sun was the most powerful object in the sky. It's the brightest light. It brings us the heat. And it at times goes to the most important point in the sky, which is straight up. And so um, it was seen as the giver of life. And and the fact that they also use it as a metaphor for you, the triple rebirth of the sun is the triple rebirth of you. They're trying to say some very deep things here. Now, the um, the, the predictions, I won't call them prophecies, but what other things aside from solar eclipses and, and I'm presuming lunar eclipses, were they able to predict? Did they, they predicted me, me, uh, pre, you know, comets and media sho- meteor showers and so forth? I think they would because those things happen on a... Uh, seasonal basis. But another thing that was very predictable was the rhythm of Venus. And as you just know, we had a recent event with Venus going in front of the disk of the sun called the transit of Venus. Were you able to uh, enjoy that? I was not, (laughs) unfortunately. No. I I was lucky enough to be able to go to a place where they had some telescopes set up. And I had never seen the sun through a telescope before. And so they had the filters on it and you could see the sunspots. But you could also see the disk of the sun. I mean, sorry, the disk of Venus travel across the face of the sun. It was quite spectacular, and it has a very unusual rhythm. And the Maya would watch that. And they, again, the only tool they have for counting, for measuring time is counting days. And so that's what they did. And they had a way of measuring these transits of Venus. And they also were able to measure, like, for example, in a few more weeks, Venus will be seen as the morning star, right? And um, in about a little more than a year and a half, it'll be seen again starting as the morning star. That's a 584-day rhythm. And so they saw that, and that actually fits into a bigger rhythm. I won't get into it. It's a little bit technical. But if you draw it, it shows that Venus has the background of the zodiac behind it, and if you trace it out, it makes a five-pointed star. And this five-pointed star represents the cycles of Venus. And so when I saw that the Maya cut the great year, this 26,000-year period, the great year, they cut it into five pieces rather than the four pieces that we see the year. The year is cut into four pieces, not by the mind of man, but by the actual geometry of the axis of the Earth and the orbit of the Earth around the sun and, you know, the equinoxes and the solstices. That's what cuts the year into four. So here they are cutting the great year into five, and I wondered, why? Why five? And then I saw that this pattern of Venus, I said, oh, they're... They're having Venus tip the hat towards the sun, or maybe vice versa. They're mimicking it. It's a five-pointed star for both this 5,125-year period, one-fifth of the processional cycles. They're honoring the cycles of Venus. Remarkable. All right, Thomas, hang in there. Listen, we'll uh, open up the phone lines, and let me get a sense from people what they think 2012 means. December 21, 2012. Are you a doom and gloomer? Do you think we're going hit, to be hit by Nibiru, Planet X, Wormwood, an asteroid, a comet? Tell me, or is it some sort of a galactic alignment, self-fulfilling prophecy, a mass coronal ejection? You tell me. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, talking 2012 with Thomas Rosetto. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. 
1-866-740-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. There's a, a new reality show on the National Geographic Channel. It's called Doomsday Preppers. And uh, each uh, week, they uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, I'm presuming what they do is they, they feature, uh, based on the material I've read, they, they feature a different family and, and how they are preparing for the end times. And they're, you know, they're, they're stocking their larder with non-perishable food items and they're, yeah. and they're taking their children out into the shooting range and teaching them how to fire uh, semi-automatic weapons and make their own candles and, and, uh, and, and uh, field dress a, a moose and so forth. I mean, it's, it's spawned a whole industry, Tom. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? It's remarkable. And, and um, um, you know, you, uh, the books now that are How to Survive 2012, The Coming Pole Shift. And th- yeah. this, there ha- I mean, I believe in, in the, uh, the concept of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, there can be that. Wh- I mean, what do you think could happen, given the, the, the uh, uh, you know, what's out there in terms of, you know, this doom and gloom? What do you, what, what scares you most about, about December 21st, 2012? I mean, I know it's not... It's not anything that's going to happen in the heavens, uh, but w- what what concerns you the most? I think that's probably it, that um, people will misunderstand and be fearful, and that fearful attitude might uh, cause them to behave in ways that just, um, you know, will end up in some missteps and uh, could end up in some heartbreak here and there. I don't know. But also... Um, on the other side of the story, some people may believe that it's going to bring them some fabulous shift in consciousness, and it may be for right. them, you know? Right. And I'm not saying that the whole world will join them on that, but you know what? If they think that it's going to shift, and why not? I mean, you can shift any day, right? I mean, it seems to me that I can often look at my attitudes and go, you know what? Smile a little more. Be a little happier. You know, put out a helping hand. And that always makes me feel better, and I can do that just about any time. I don't have to wait for a certain date on a calendar. Let's, let's hope that's the case. So how do people get a hold of Mystical 2012, the triple rebirth of the sun, and the triple rebirth of you? Well, I've got the website, mystical2012.com. That'll give you plenty of information about the book. And if you want to read a lot of my free essays, which will give you a really good feel about what the book contains, the free essays are at 2012essays.com. Dot com And Graham Hancock has been kind enough to give me an endorsement, so I have that now on the cover of the book. Wow, that is quite an endorsement from uh, Graham Hancock. Congratulations. Yeah, he made me author of the month in March on his website, and uh, so I, um, gave, I decided to put a new cover on the book and put up his endorsement. So wh- what are you going to do on December 21st, 2012? Are you going to go down to a Zappa, or are you, gonna, are you just going to hang out? What are you going to do? I can't imagine a Zappa would be... Uh, I imagine it would be quite crowded down there. I hear it's just going to be nuts and just about all those Maya sites. And that's, that's not really for me, but uh, if it uh, turns out that way, then maybe I would go that way. But, I, I, you know, the winter solstice is kind of an inner, you know, inner adventure for me. You know what I'm saying? And the summer solstice tends to be more outward. So, um, you know, it wouldn't be surprising for me to just keep a quiet day and night. 
And uh, after, you know, on December 22nd, 2012, when the uh, the sun has moved slightly out of the center of the uh, the, the yeah. dark rift and, and, yeah. and life continues as usual, yeah. uh, and all of this, you know, hoopla dies down the way it did after Y2K. Yes, yes. What's, what's next for Thomas Rosetto? Are you, I mean, are you, are you, you've, you've, you know, you've dedicated a good part of the last four or five years to this topic. Yeah, what, what? I put in a good solid four years on this, and it's been uh, kind of an interesting thing because it started as just a question in my mind. It wasn't like, gee, what would be a good topic for a book? It wasn't that at all. And as I dug into it, I just kept going, wow. And we have spoken a number of times, and there were times that I was looking at this question going, the extraterrestrials must have done this. The precision is just unbelievable. And as I dug in, I go, wow, it looks like humans could have done it. And each one of these steps was a little bit more of a, well, if I would have said extraterrestrials did it, it might be easier to sell some books. You know what I mean? Right, Rick? exactly, yes. And, and so here I have to go, well, i got to go with the data. The data says that the ETs are not required. But this does not mean that I've proved that there were no ETs or that I've addressed the ET question at all or the ancient ter- extraterrestrial um, theory I- at all, you know. But anyway, I kept going through this adventure. And when I found it had to do with psychedelics, I again kind of paused. I said, I don't want to be a guy out promoting psychedelics, but it sure seems like this is an integral factor of the message, you know? And so as I learn more and more of this, there's quite a bit of this message that actually does not rely on the calendar, you know, the mystical understanding of life and who you are. And so I'll be writing more about that and uh, releasing a book uh, perhaps in about six months. I'm not sure when I'll be able to do it, but um, the book will be more of just mysticism in general, and it won't be coupled to the Maya calendar. Let's talk about something uh, that that was sort of the, a Mayan prophecy, and that was their their predicted return of their great uh, chief. Um, I, I guess he goes by a couple of names, Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan, right? Yeah, Kukulkan is how the Maya refer to him. He's a very interesting guy, because when I first saw him portrayed, it was humanoid, you know, a, a man with arms and legs, and, you know... The feathered would, serpent. Pardon? The feathered serpent. Yes, and he would have the skin of a snake, and he would have feathers coming off him, and he would be depicted in uh, proportion to another man. He'd be like maybe eight feet tall or something. And I'd look at that going, wow, is it really an extraterrestrial that had skin like that and feathers? Because every year, twice a year, we have the snake coming out of the sky at, um, in the pyramid over there in uh, Chichen Itza, right? comes right it's a three-dimensional movie that played and playing for a thousand years right now it's right. amazing i'm going this dude is obviously very important and then on the history channel just a couple months ago they said coco khan is also sometimes depicted as this and the camera showed a maya monument with a wall vertical wall and out of the wall came straight the body of a snake and the mouth was wide open and inside the mouth was the head and the face of a man looking out and I immediately went, oh, I, I understand Coco Khan now, because a snake is the Milky Way. Um, we've all seen the symbol of the Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail. Right. Right. This is an ancient symbol that goes back probably to Egypt. The word is Greek, Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail. The Maya, they don't show the snake eating its tail, although what we're talking about here is a snake. Why a snake? Because the long, skinny patch of stars going around all of us, around the earth. That is a long, skinny thing in the sky. Well, what's that like? It's like a long, skinny snake, right? And in the area where, this is the other metaphor, the pregnant belly, 
where the pregnant belly is. In this metaphor, we have the snake opening its mouth, and the dark rift is that opening of its mouth. And then the sun, or the shaman, or the sun god, is going into that section, going into the mouth of the snake. So why does the snake have feathers? Well, because birds have feathers, and birds fly in the sky. And so you have a snake in the sky. So it's the Milky Way with the sun going right through the mouth. And why the mouth? Well, you know, a predator will attack a prey, and the prey will die. But inside the mouth, the prey will be absorbed and then reborn into the body of the um, animal or the snake. So you have this metaphor of death and rebirth, eternal life, the cycle of life. And you have that happening with this man's face in there saying, you know, the rebirth of me, you know, I'm coming forth from the mouth, in this case, coming out from the transformation. And so they also use this symbol of the mouth or the cave or the womb. These are all tied together. And the shamans would say they were going into the underworld or they're going into the cave or they're going into the womb. You know, they're all wrapped together. So Kukukan, you know, he's shown as this person who brought them their corn, their way of life, their calendar, and all of this. But I honestly think there could be more to it. But I'm saying that it's mostly this image in the sky that's just trying to bring forth some metaphorical stories to answer questions about creation, questions that really can't be answered. The mystery of creation is just baffling, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's really the only topic that matters <laughs> at the same time, which is yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah. Who are you and where did all this stuff come from? Exactly, and where are we going? But Kukulkan also referred to as Quetzalcoatl. Now, the Quetzal is a bird. Yes, and again, we have the feathers. Right. The beautiful yeah. bird, the Quetzal. Yeah, yeah. And, um, With a long tail. Yes. Now, it's actually the Milky Way portrayed in many of the metaphorical stories, because you can imagine that if the Milky... I'm sorry, I said the Milky Way. I really meant the Big Dipper. Um, the Big Dipper has those stars that make the dipper. That's the body of the bird. And then the long tail is the handle. So if you put the handle down, say maybe going down and to the right... You know, you have that tail in the body of the bird. And so um, Kukukan, or Quetzalcoatl, as the bird, is born and dies as it spins through the sky, as it comes up from the horizon and then later sets down in the horizon. You've got the birth and death of this bird. You know, this is going to be of great disappointment to uh, to all of the, <laughs> the doom and gloomers, uh, but you know what, I think... Uh, you've really nailed it, Thomas. I think this is oh, what December twenty first, twenty twelve, is all about, uh, and it, and in its own way, it is quite remarkable and spectacular, considering, you know, the the way that the Mayans were able to uh, devise this remarkable timepiece, the, the Mayan long count calendar. Yeah, it's it's very beautiful. It's very profound, and a lot of people are disappointed when they say, "Well, what is it going to be? Is it going to be you know this big giant thing?" I was well, it's not going to be a big giant thing, although it's going to be kind of an interesting astronomical event, and it's like. So it's not doom and gloom, and it's not, you know, world peace coming right this minute. And I, well, you know, I hope it is, but, you know, and I try to underline this profound message of the triple rebirth of you, but it doesn't have as much impact. So then again, I, I sell less books. <laughs> so well, you may, you may sell less books, it, but, you know, then maybe I would sell more. I don't know. Well, but you're going to instill hopefully some peace of mind and, and put an end to this hysteria, which is yeah. uh, reaching uh, yeah. ridiculous levels. Yeah, and also... It makes my book actually uh, meaningful after the date passes, although I don't think too many people will be interested in the general question of the Maya. But if you were to ask the question in a year or ten years or whatever, you would know the comfort that there was no you know, huge cataclysm or whatever. And you'd say, well, I wonder what they were talking about. Maybe they were actually talking about something. 
You know, a lot of people, especially the mainstream, I like the mainstream scientists saying that there is going to be no doom and gloom, but they don't ask the question, well, what in the world was it about then? Exactly, yes. Well, and thankfully we have Thomas Rosetto to sort that out for us in a very eloquent and poetic manner. Thank you, Thomas. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And again, the book. uh, Tell us how we get a copy of uh, 2012, Mystical 2012. Uh, The best place is just Amazon.com. Put in Mystical 2012, and you'll see both your Kindle version and your paperback version. All right, Thomas Rosetto. Have a happy December 21st, my friend. All right. Listen, when we, um, why don't we do this? Now until the bottom of the hour, until Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us to talk about multidimensional portals, uh, why don't you give me a call and tell me what you think is in store uh, for December 21st, 2012. If you think there may be some sort of a doomsday scenario, we can certainly entertain that. Uh, if you think that there will be some sort of uh, universal consciousness raising occurring on the winter solstice, we'd love to hear from you. 416 360 740 416-360-0740, 866-744-740, 1-866-744-740, toll free from Maine to Minnesota, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas. Let's talk 2012 now to the bottom of the hour. What do you think is going to happen? And um, this will probably be uh, our... um, if our, not our last, certainly our second to last show on 2012 before December 21st, 2012. And then we will forever close the books on uh, this whole phenomena. So get it said now or forever hold your peace. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. To get to the truth... Call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. We're talking 2012 and what you think is in store for December 21st, 2012. Again, I just finished um, speaking at Idea City. And again, I want to thank uh, Moses Neimer and uh, David Sursta and uh, uh, Kate Bangay and, and all of the people uh, involved um, in in putting together uh, that remarkable, remarkable, uh, whatever you want to call it, con- conference, symposium, meeting of the minds, three day uh, um, uh, uh, a brain festival, <laughs> uh, some remarkable speakers, and I hope you you were able to uh, to enjoy some of those. And if not, well, there's always next year. All right, let us begin. Uh, let's see. Can we say hello to uh, Ken is in Markham. Hello, Ken. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Enjoy the show. Listen, I think it's, you know, it seems quite arbitrary to pick a date out of thin air, regardless of whether it comes from Mayan prophecy or what have you. But I think the reality is, is that there are some powerful forces at work here, occult and otherwise, 
that could be ramping up to do something quite spectacular on or before or around December 21st. And I think that the paranoia that we all may have, legitimate or otherwise, is going to feed into that. And so if and when something does happen on December 21st, be it a false flag or whatever else, it will or it could have the ability to throw the entire world into a cataclysm of a, of a civilization kind of a way, not necessarily planets colliding, but minds and ideas and forces colliding upon the, you know, instigation of some, some other forces that may not have all of our interests at heart. Well, Ken, you make some excellent points. I mean, the Mayan long count calendar aside, let's just park that. We don't have to uh, look very far to realize uh, the, the situation in the world is pretty tense. We are on, uh, uh, you know, we're walking around on eggshells, whether you're talking about, uh, uh, the, you know, the financial uh, cataclysm that, uh, you know, could reignite at any moment. Uh, of course, you know, uh, we're all eyes watching uh, uh, Greece uh, tonight as they, uh, they um, went through another round of elections. And let's hope this time there's some stability there. But who knows where that's heading? We've got environmental degradation. So what you're saying is, is and I think it's very interesting, uh, that let's, you mentioned the occult. I'm very intrigued by that. So you think that w- whatever these, these forces, and there may be some demonic... Uh, forces at play, they may just tap into all the negative energy that's surrounding uh, December 21st, 2012, and use that to further their nefarious uh, uh, chess game. Sure, and, and I think that, you know, whether you're uh, steeped in Mayan, you know, history or not, I think that, you know, that's what may have been going on with their civilizations, you know, and why some of those other ancient civilizations failed. So, you know, there's two sides of it. There's kind of like the left brain scientific part of it, and then there's the metaphysical part of it, which we all share consciously or unconsciously. And it, I don't think it would take very much at all, at all to set us off. Who those people are or why they would do it is, is hard to say. But even if you look at London 2012, you know, yes. if you type in that into any YouTube search, there's a lot of weird stuff that comes up that suggests that, you know, there's some weird sacrifice ritual being planned, and the technology is over the top in terms of monitoring, in terms of, you know, cameras and all the rest of it, and it really wouldn't take very much at all to just turn the whole world on its head and use that as an excuse for eugenics or anything else that might coming down the pipe later on. Well, there certainly are forces out there that like to dabble in numerology, and they they seem to pick certain dates uh, for an expressed purposes, sometimes known only to them. So who knows? Maybe some of those uh, uh, forces out there will uh, or have latched on to December 21st, and they've got a, a special treat in store for us all. <laughs> uh, Ken, I thank you for the call. Good to talk no to you. No problem. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, let's say hello to Denise, who's in Manitoba. Hello, Denise. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Oh, let me uh, lock Denise in here first. Let me get rid of... Uh, there we go. There's Denise. Good morning. Yes. Good evening. How are you? Hi. I'm doing good. I um, actually enjoyed the show this evening. Um, it was a bit refreshing to hear um, what I feel is a little bit closer to... Um, to the whole Mayan calendar 2012 um, history or feeling. 
Um, so it sounds like you're not one of those doom and gloomers, Denise. Um, I guess me, I, I must admit, at one time, um, without really knowing anything or asking questions, um, it did strike a bit of fear in me as a mother, um, because it also became a topic with my children. Yes, and yes. So, and as I also went back and, and found my own understanding and, and I guess my, my own beliefs, I, I came to a conclusion myself, and it really bothered me that there was all that doom and gloom about it when it could be such a beautiful time, a, a wonderful event, if we were to use it in such a way like a spiritual event or an awakening. And so do you believe that there's a potential for some sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and there will be some sort of evolution in our in 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 human universal human consciousness? I believe we are we are in that process. That's how I feel is that we are in that process and we are going to get um, moments in time we'll ha- where we will have the opportunity. And again, it comes down to our own choice, our own way of seeing it and approaching it. Um, having the date, I think the, the significance of, of the stars in the universe, I think, really do play, play a role in our lives. We can't discor- disconnect ourselves from it. So when there is a major event happening, of course, I feel that there's, that we can, um, have certain changes in our own life, so the evolution part of it, I guess. When you, when, when you look around the world, Denise, do you see any evidence that there is going to be uh, you know, uh, uh, an, an evolution in human consciousness in and around that date? Um, well, I guess when, when I listen to the, the science of it, um, and then again for for my my own beliefs i kind of try and bring a connection with the two and i find that they're they're starting to come closer and closer to the to to the way that i i have seen things or have been brought up to see as a as us being a a spiritual people and and that being said i feel that um these changes that are coming about are are you know like we're not the only ones that are going to have to change Everything around us is changing as well, and and we are just part of that change. And sometimes it affects us more, more so. Like the whether it's talking about the weather or or it's talking about the way people are are reacting. Again, those are you know those are all part of those changes. That's how I feel about it. Denise, thank you for calling and checking in from Manitoba tonight. Thank you for listening. Have okay. a good evening. Thanks for the show. It's a great show. Oh, I appreciate okay. you saying that. Thank you. Bye. All right. Who's up next? We have, uh, let's see, we have Joe. Joe is here in Toronto. Welcome to The Conspiracy Joe. Good morning. Hi. Hi. I don't believe in uh, doom and gloom. I believe that the 26,000-year cycle is that uh, we, uh, our son, uh, circles another sun every 26,000 years and that is going to change our whole new perspective on the universe. And how is it going to do that, Joe? How? Yes. We're not alone. You believe that on December 21st we will have evidence that we are not alone? Star-wise. 
will make some discovery of this second sun or uh, Earth-like planets perhaps orbiting that sun and and we'll, we'll, and we'll realize... It will become visible to us. The second sun will be visible to us. Yeah. And that's going to happen on December 21st, 2012. That's what I believe. Right. And what led you to believe that, Joe? It's an interesting theory. Uh, it is the revolution of uh, the 26,000 years. The 26,000 years, that would be the, uh, yes, the, the parade of the equinoxes. All right, Joe. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled to the sky and see if that second sun does, in fact, reveal itself. Well, who knows? Indeed. Who knows? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and your calls. What do you think is going to happen December 21st, 2012? Are you a doom and gloomer? Do you believe in a galactic alignment? You tell me when we return. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. All right, and uh, last call to the phones. Uh, keep in mind, this may be your last time you can weigh in on the whole 2012 phenomenon as, uh, uh, what are we now, uh, July, August, September, October, November, this is about six months uh, six months and three days and counting until December 21st, 2012. And then uh, you'll never hear that uh, again except maybe uh, in some sort of a, uh, a trivia game at the local pub. So uh, if, you, if you've got a, a theory as to what is going to befall mankind on December 21st, 2012, uh, now is the time to, uh, to get it said. It could be, uh, well, there are a number of uh, doom and gloom scenarios um, floating around out there. Some of them I, I alluded to earlier. The one that I think makes the most sense, if there is something out there in the heavens that's, uh, that's going to, uh, to, you know, to come this way, I don't think it's a comet. Uh, Lord knows we've had um, horrible things happen as a result of rumors about comets. Remember Hale-Bopp uh, back in 1997 and this whole um, occult that arose because of the uh, Hale-Bopp comet, uh, Heaven's Gate, and uh, somebody, some amateur astronomer, decided that they saw something trailing behind the Hale-Bopp comet. And to keep in mind, this was like one of the most observed comets of the 20th century. It was a bright comet. We saw it coming for 18 months, and so there was a great deal of anticipation and speculation uh, built around the Hale-Bopp comet. And when an, uh, an amateur astronomer uh, called a, uh, a very popular late-night radio show, not this one, and pronounced that there was something trailing behind the Hale-Bopp comet, and then the UFO call, uh, community got on board and said, ah, it's a giant spacecraft, a UFO, following behind the Hale-Bopp comet. That gave rise to, the, uh, to Heaven's Gate. And uh, they decided, uh, the, uh, the devotees, 
that they were all going to be teleported aboard the UFO following behind Hale-Bopp, so they might as well hasten their own deaths, and they did exactly that in 1997. Horrible, horrible tragedy. So I don't think um, we should get to, uh, we should be concerned about comets. There are comets out there. Some of them have uh, huge orbital uh, uh, passages, something like 10,000 years. There, there was one that passed by about 22 million miles uh, uh, past the Earth back in October 2011. It was quite large. It had a nucleus of about four kilometers. Now, you can imagine a chunk of ice, which is essentially what a comet is, surrounded by gas, a gas atmosphere, which is called the coma or the comma. And then it's got like a tail, which is usually you know, many, many, many times greater than the, the, uh, the diameter. Uh, and, and this comet that passed uh, by in October that had a diameter of about four kilometers, there were a lot of rumors about that one. I believe it's called uh, C2110X1, uh, it was called. Uh, a Lenin, it also went by the name of Lenin, this comet. And the rumors were rampant that it was responsible for the earthquake and the tsunami in Japan in 2011. That this comet somehow uh, was able to exert some gravitational influence upon the Earth. Which just is, you know, makes no scientific uh, sense. Comets don't have that kind of influence on the Earth. Uh, if they did, they wouldn't uh, allow the, uh, the gas to escape from the surface of this giant ice ball and form the, the coma, the coma around the, uh, the nucleus. They exert no gravitational influence. In any event, uh, so we have the comet theory. We have the asteroid theory. Now, keep in mind, you know, there was a recent uh, NASA census, uh, which I believe was uh, gathered by something called the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer that NASA sent up. Uh, it's since been decommissioned uh, sometime, I think, late last year, actually. Uh, but uh, according to um, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, known as WISE, they, they discovered there were, there were about 4,700 potentially dangerous asteroids uh, out there in, um, in harm's way. Now, the odds of you know, a planet killer hitting the Earth, generally every, you know, several hundred thousand years. That happens. So the odds are pretty good it's not going to happen on December 21st, 2012. Uh, but it could happen at some point in the very, you know, far future. Now, in 1908, there was, I mentioned this earlier, a, a fairly small asteroid, only 20 meters in diameter, now, 20 meters, again, pretty small. If that hits the Earth, that could potentially wipe out a city. I mean, you could kill million, it could kill million, millions of people. Now, thankfully, the one that hit Tuscunga in Siberia in 1908, that, it was virtually uninhabited. As it were, was, it cleared about, it flattened 2,000 square kilometers of trees, something only 20 meters in diameter. Something like that could potentially slip by and go unnoticed. So what I'm saying is that there is a potential for something like that to happen. I think it's remote. And as the years go by and our technology increases and our, our surveillance methods intensify, 
Uh, I think we'll be able to deal with those, even those potential planet killers in, say, 100 years. Who knows? Maybe we'll send Bruce Willis's great-great-great-grandson to land on one of those asteroids, and, and uh, he'll take care of everything for us. Uh, let's see. Who do we have waiting on the line? It's Tony from Brampton. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Tony, and good morning to you. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. I have only one thing to say about the uh, doom and gloomers. Uh, do you remember back in the 1990s, uh, about the mid-1990s, about the uh, uh, Y2K bug? That's right, yes. It was the and, same sort and, of situation. Yeah. And they thought the end of the world was going to come at the uh, at 2000. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, Much ado about nothing, wasn't it? Yeah. And there are a lot of parallels. A lot of uh, there was a huge industry that, uh, uh, as I recall, there were survive Y two K books that came out then, and there was, uh, I don't know that reality shows had had, had reached their uh, you know were very as popular back then. But I'm sure uh, if Y two K were happening now, there'd be a there'd be a reality show uh, based on Y two K. Thanks sure. for the call. People I appreciate it. Building shelters and everything. I'm sure there were back then. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tony. Uh, in fact, it seems to me, I remember there was actually uh, a, a number of people who, in anticipation of Y2K, spent everything they had, sold their houses, and they went on a spending spree in anticipation that Y2K would be the end of everything and they wouldn't be uh, responsible for their debts. And, of course, uh, after... Uh, December 31st, 1999 came and went and to, uh, everyone woke up with a huge hangover on December or on January 1st, 2000. Those individuals actually um, claimed that they shouldn't be responsible for the debts that they incurred because of this whole Y2K phenomenon, this hysteria. And they said that they weren't responsible, that they were led to believe it was the end of everything. So how could we hold them responsible for their credit card debts and so forth? Uh, so it goes around, comes around. Nothing new under the sun, as they say, and the Mayans certainly knew that as well. Uh, why don't we uh, take a quick time out, and when we come back, we'll uh, bring Rosemary Ellen Guiley into the proceedings to discuss multidimensional portals right here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740, Zoomer Radio. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The big question when you're discussing paranormal uh, phenomena, whether it's some sort of a, a specter or a spirit, uh, uh, or even, uh, some have speculated, uh, a Bigfoot, the thing is, where do these things come from? And it has been suggested by uh, paranormal investigators like my next guest that it's possible they come into our reality through a multidimensional portal. The question is, how do these multidimensional portals get made? 
where are they, how do we access them, and uh, are we ready, really, to cope with the fact that we have interdimensional neighbors, maybe right at the tip of our very noses. Having said that, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show once again our resident paranormal investigator. She joins us once a month. She's the author of some 45 books. She's busily working on a new book on Ouija boards, and she'll be back next month to discuss that. In the meantime, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome. Hi there, Richard. Multidimensional portals. What do you mean by that? These are boundaries between dimensions where uh, the barrier is very thin between our world and another world. These are places on the planet where, since ancient times, people have had extraordinary experiences. They could be mystical experiences where people meet the gods, they meet angels, they have um, enraptured experiences and healing experiences, or they can be cursed land where people have bad luck, accidents, they meet disasters. They can also be places in between where if you happen to visit a place like that or live in a place like that, you're very haunted. I think that uh, they've always existed on this planet. We are absolutely peppered with port, uh, portals all over the globe. Now, they can be big, they can be small, they could be running through your house or your own yard. So is it, is it literally like a gateway or a, door, a doorway to a parallel uh, dimension? Is that what we're talking about, just an opening? It is indeed, and in fact, science today tells us that we are part of a multidimensional reality, that we're not the only people on this planet. Our dimension is layered with up to 11, maybe even 12 dimensions, and these other realities are around a bend in space, so we don't really see them most of the time, but they're literally right on top of us, and if we are in the right space, in the right conditions, in the right place on the planet, we have these open doorways where we can experience these beings. And I've always believed that uh, a lot of our experiences involving what we call extraterrestrials, mysterious creatures, ghosts and poltergeists, um, angels, fairies, elementals, even demonic entities, they are all beings who live in these other dimensions right here on the planet. We're sharing space with a lot of other invisible neighbors. Where are these uh, portals located? I was, I was in uh, Los Angeles uh, um, a month ago, and someone was saying, have you been up to Mount Shasta? And I said, no, I've heard a lot about Mount Shasta. I'd like to go there sometime. And they told me that that's a multidimensional portal. Is that true? It is indeed, and I have been to Mount Shasta a number of times, and I have investigated there. It is considered to be one of the most important portals on the planet. You've got everything there. Uh, people have mysterious lights in the sky, encounters with alien beings, ascended masters, angels, mysterious creatures. Uh, they have visitations in their dreams. Uh, all kinds of things go on in Mount Shasta. Bermuda Triangle is another well-known portal. Uh, the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. Uh, I've investigated a good number of portals just in America that are big and small. The San Luis Valley, 8,000 square miles, stretching from southern Colorado into northern New Mexico, is one of the largest in the world. 
Stonehenge sits in a portal. They're all over the planet, and they're usually places where, in ancient times, people knew them intuitively to be a geography of extraordinary energy, and they would put sacred temples on those sites, or stone circles, or something that indicated a meeting place with the gods. Or if the energy was bad, because portals can also involve negative energy, they were cursed land, places to be avoided, because bad spirits were there. So um, as I've been documenting a lot of cases in my paranormal research, these patterns have become more and more apparent to me over the years. And uh, people go and live in portal areas. We, we put our houses down where um, these intersections exist. And sometimes our experiences aren't so pleasant, and we'd like the things to go away. But we're sitting on land that literally has an opening on both sides of dimensional realities. And these doorways are not going to close. So I think we, we, we're going to have to reorient our thinking in terms of how we occupy this planet. We share it with other dimensional beings, and uh, we are coming into a multidimensional consciousness where I think we're going to have to learn how to share the planet. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a paranormal investigator, researcher, the author of, uh, well, The Vengeful Jinn and Talking to the Dead. She's working on another book on, on the Ouija board. Uh, which is, I guess, sort of a, a portal, uh, a portable portal, if you will. You can uh, take that with you and uh, um, uh, perhaps communicate with the other side. We will talk about that at length next month. But I want to ask you something about, about, else about uh, portals, and that is why are they? Why do they tend to be located where they are? Is I mean, if you map these things out, is there any rhyme or reason to where these portals are found? Are they? Do they, for example, correspond with? what the ancients used to call ley lines or this grid, this invisible uh, grid pattern that, that uh, um, sort of uh, circumnavigates the globe? They do, Richard. There are characteristics and very predictable patterns to portals, and I've documented many of them over the years. Some of them do uh, correspond to ley lines, and in, in various parts of the world, the, the ley lines are lines of natural earth energy, They've been very well documented, and in other places they have not. Uh, there are other characteristics as well, magnetic anomalies, both negative and positive. And uh, these maps can be obtained uh, on the Internet of um, areas where the, um, the magnetic energy is either significantly higher or significantly lower than most of the surrounding terrain. And this seems to set up a lot of energy that warps space. Uh, and uh, these are very characteristic of portal areas. So uh, you can make... Areas me where there have been a lot of mining, um, abandoned mine tunnels, active mine tunnels, caves, underground springs. Uh, these are also characteristic of portals. Soil, which has a high content of magnetic... Uh, material in it, like iron or magnetite or quartz. Uh, again, it, it sends off energy that affects the magnetic field of the planet. And uh, uh, these all form uh, doorways, and some of them are very strong doorways, and they're open all the time. 
Uh, these are famous areas like Mount Shasta that you just mentioned. And others are much smaller, and they open and close. They have cycles of energy that go up and down. And uh, they, they can uh, pockmark um, uh, places around the Earth uh, where we all live and we all have activities. And as, as uh, we're spreading into more and more remote areas, I think we're hitting more of these areas that have been used as access points by entities from other dimensions. They've done it very quietly, and now they're coming uh, to be, uh, you know, exposed into the open. We'll, uh, we'll take a quick time out. When we come back, Rosemary, I want to talk about uh, what uh, is likely to walk through these portals from the other side into our reality. We'll do that when we come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal researcher here on The Conspiracy Show, stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we're back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of Talking to the Dead, The Vengeful Jinn, some 45 books, many of them major encyclopedic works. She's working on a new book on Ouija boards, and she joins us once a month here on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking about multidimensional portals. Now, um, I've talked to you about uh, werewolves. Uh, in fact, you and I uh, sat down in Central Park and talked about werewolves just as the sun was setting. It was kind of eerie, and I've talked to other people, uh, uh, Nick Redfern and, and, and others, uh, about re- uh, werewolves. We, are these, I mean, I know they have you know, their place in legend and folklore, but there have been uh, sightings in places like Wisconsin and in England around uh, sort of uh, these ancient uh, uh, sites, uh, places like uh, a Stonehenge. People have seen what appear to be wolves walking upright on two legs. Could these be of the types of creatures that are that are making their way through these multidimensional portals into our reality, Rosemary. Yes, and in fact, <clears throat> in fact, I get uh, frequent reports of uh, wolves and dog-faced entities. I, I refer to them more as uh, dogmen more than werewolves because a, a werewolf is a human being who shape shifts into the form of a wolf, and dogmen seem to be weird hybrid entities that embody human-like characteristics as well as wolf or dog-like characteristics. These seem to be quite common in these, these uh, very active portal areas. And Wisconsin, that you uh, mentioned, is one of these corridors. Uh, Linda Godfrey, of course, has documented a, a lot of activity in the Wisconsin and Michigan areas. These accounts go back for generations, well into Native American lore before uh, very many white settlers came to the area. So they're uh, indicative of uh, certain areas where entities come and go. And in some areas we find that there are certain kinds of entities that, that seem almost exclusive to the area, like perhaps Bigfoot or Dogman. Other areas are what I call kitchen sink areas. They've got everything going on, uh, from mysterious lights in the sky, crafts, orbs, uh, floating lights, ghosts, poltergeists, 
mysterious creatures of all sorts, demons, fairies, good experiences, bad experiences. They've got everything going on all the time. And other portals seem to uh, wax and wane in activity. And I found that some of them follow lunar cycles. They're very active before and after the full moon and before and after the new moon. And they also are characteristics of, uh, characteristic of waves. For example, uh, the Mothman wave that hit uh, in the mid-Ohio River Valley in the mid-1960s, 1966 to 67, was a 13-month wave of activity of all kinds of paranormal activity. And even though the area is still a hotbed today, it hasn't exhibited uh, a wave of activity where, where almost every night uh, dozens of people were experiencing all kinds of things. So these portals seem to um, get energized, and uh, it may be because of human activity, uh, human participation, interest, triggering something, human events that might uh, trigger something going on in another dimension that there's a bleed-through back into ours. We don't really understand these portals, and science really dismisses them, but yet the evidence throughout history indicates that they do exist. You mentioned Sasquatch, and uh, there are, there are uh, several schools of thought on what Sasquatch is, and, and one attributes a certain paranormal uh, aspect to this elusive creature. In fact, I've talked to Bigfoot hunters who said uh, that they've, uh, in fact, Linda Godfrey, I think, mentioned this once, uh, so they, they were tracking a big foot, or at least the footprints, and all of a sudden the footprints stopped in the middle of the woods, in the snow, and they didn't go any further. So where did Sasquatch go? Through one of these time portals, perhaps, or these multidimensional portals? They just literally disappear into another dimension. This is why uh, when people have encounters with entities and mysterious creatures, uh, they often report that they just seem to vanish in front of their eyes, and I think it's because they bleed through into another dimension where they are beyond the physical senses. And uh, people have often speculated, well, if, if these entities can come into our dimension, do we go into theirs? Ah, yes. And, and do we come back? Well, we, it seems to be a very one-way trip because uh, we seem to have experiences where the entities invade our space, but uh, we don't get reports of people saying, well, they've gone into another dimension and come back to, to tell about it. But I do think that these uh, excursions can happen both ways. And perhaps uh, for peculiarities that we don't understand, uh, when we fall into those dimensions, it may be more of a one-way trap door. There you go. And uh, yeah. they could account for, for a lot of the missing persons uh, reports around the planet. That's true. I was thinking the same thing. I mean, what about all those, uh, you know, uh, people on on uh, on the sides of milk cartons? Uh, they do that in the U.S. Not up here so much. Missing persons and missing children that vanish without a trace. No, no physical remains ever found. And yes, it's possible. Maybe they fell into one of these portals. Uh, they're somewhere on the other side. Of course, we don't know what the other side looks like, or do we? Do we have do we have any sense of what these other dimensions might look like? Are they Maybe they're just like here on Earth. Well, we have accounts uh, throughout history of people who have visited fairyland, and uh, this often was described as a one-way trip, that if you went down 
down the rabbit hole, which was literally the, the, the uh, fairy land. It was going down into the earth through the roots of a tree or a tunnel or something. Um, and once you reached fairyland, it was usually a one-way trip. You didn't come back. But there are a few accounts of people who did manage to make it back, and they described these uh, otherworldly places where time was different, uh, the world looked different, reality uh, was heightened, and um, colors were more vivid, and um, there was kind of a state of en- enchantment. And um, those are exceptionally rare. Um, it, it seems like uh, we don't have the ability to move back and forth. I think that when we have encounters with some of these other creatures, we might even be in some sort of weird twilight zone, be literally between dimensions, where we're having a momentary experience of them superimposed on our reality, and, uh, and then it evaporates, almost like a dream. We're not quite in their dimension, and maybe they're not quite in ours. Uh, we have sort of a between place. So uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions, but um, the, the fact that people do have these encounters has been well documented for thousands of years, that we are having encounters with beings who are not entirely of this reality. This is why we never find carcasses, why we never capture them, why they vanish in front of our eyes, and yet the patterns of these experiences are very consistent. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, researcher here on The Conspiracy Show with uh, Richard Serrett on AM740, Zoomer Radio. The other example uh, is the uh, the jungle cat mystery uh, in uh, England. Imagine uh, walking along a a, a beautiful uh, a pastoral setting in in rural England, and all of a sudden you see a black panther. Uh, you know, which totally defies um, rational explanation, unless of course these are exotic pets that someone's uh, let go. Some have attributed them to uh, you know dating as far back as. Uh, when the, Ro- the ancient Romans occupied uh, a, a Britain, and perhaps some of the, the, the governors, the Roman governors, had imported these uh, um, jungle cats from, from Afri- their African provinces. Do you think these mystery cats, these jungle cats that have been seen in England, could also be explained by multidimensional portals? I do, and in fact, they're documented all over America as well. I uh, wrote a book on uh, mysterious creatures in West Virginia for a state-by-state series uh, here in the States. And even though it's, uh, the stories are all from a particular state, I did West Virginia, they're very characteristic of other places all over the globe because entities from other dimensions really don't pay attention to human boundaries. And, for example, just in the state of West Virginia alone, there are... Um, hundreds of sightings of these black panthers, mountain lions, and even lions, like African uh, lions, that the scientists say could not possibly be. Uh, And uh, in terms of the black panthers, it's like, well, there's, uh, you know, they should not exist in those parts of America. But yet people see them over and over again. And the scientists will often dismiss this as, well, uh, you know, your eyesight was bad or it was too far away or it was dark or you mistook something, some other kind of creature for 
a black panther. They've even told people that they were domestic cats, you know, um, kitty cats. And and that's just absurd uh, because a lot of these people are uh, hunters. Uh, they live uh, in the deep woods. Uh, they certainly know a domestic cat from a wild cat. One would presume, yes. If um, let's say, for example, final question, Rosemary, you you're uh, you happen to be uh, unfortunate enough to be in a home that is located. Uh, let's say your you know your your pantry door actually is the uh, the the gateway, this interdimensional uh, portal to another realm, and uh, you, a constant flow of traffic from the other side, and some of it not good. Maybe, God forfend, it's uh, sort of a demonic realm. What can you do? Is there a way of closing, sealing that that uh, that portal, or uh, do you have to live with it? I deal with these cases all the time, and uh, you're not going to close a portal because it's energized by the very earth, by very things in the soil. There are things that human beings can do to alleviate some of the activity in a portal, however, and there are quite a few remedies that work, but they don't necessarily work in all cases. And that's the difficult part of resolving some of these uh, issues. And then also the biggest wild card is human consciousness because people have varying levels of tolerance for this kind of interaction. So uh, sometimes doing land cleansings and clearings can help, prayer, spiritual appeal, uh, placing uh, magical objects uh, around a house or in a house um, to alter the flow of energy through, uh, through the environment. They can be effective in reducing the activity, but in some of these portals, it's virtually impossible to eliminate the activity. And that's where we're going to have to rethink uh, our uh, relationship on this planet uh, in terms of other dimensional realities. We may not be able to build wherever we please or live wherever we please, because there are other energies and other beings sharing the same physical space. I, I just a thought occurred to me, Rosemary, if you happen, happen to have an interdimensional uh, portal in your home and uh, there's, you know, uh, all sorts of nasty entities coming through that doorway, you could always hire a doorman and charge a cover. That might, that might <laughs> limit the... <laughs> that might dissuade some of them from coming that through. That could do it. <laughs> Rosemary, always a delight, and I look forward to uh, your book coming out at the end of the month. Uh, what, the title, do we have a title yet for your book on Ouija boards? Yes, it's called Ouija Gone Wild. Ouija Gone Wild. Can't wait to talk to you about that. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Her website is visionaryliving.com. And uh, we look forward to having Rosemary back on uh, next month at some point to uh, talk about Ouija's gone wild, and they have. You know, people use Ouija boards. Uh, well, uh, I remember. I remember having one as a child, uh, and I may have dabbled in it once or twice, but I was sufficiently um, uh, frightened never to use it again. And uh, I can't believe to this uh, day that they're selling them in toy stores and you know marketing them towards children twelve or thirteen. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know um, whether you believe in an unseen world or a spirit world. I do. And I don't think they're, they're uh, something they should be trifled with. Talk about uh, opening a portal and uh, letting God knows what uh, come in. 
But I have, uh, over the years, I have heard some absolutely chilling stories from people regarding uh, Ouija boards, uh, uh, people who have tried to get rid of the Ouija board, throw it out. The next day, it's back in the closet. Uh, They took it down the street, threw it in a dumpster. The next day, it's back in the closet. I kid you not. So we'll get into all of that with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, thanks for listening. My thanks to Thomas Rosetto uh, for Talking 2012. Uh, And uh, Andre Lowy, our technical producer uh, tonight. Thank you, Andre. Good work. We'll talk to you next week as well. Uh, Ed Decker, the dark side of Freemasonry, joins me along with Nelson Thal and Ms. Wanda Steele discussing how Michael Jackson faked his death. We'll learn learn about exactly how he did it, why he did it, and where he's living. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.